Well, good morning, family. It's good to be here this morning. Good to have this opportunity to come and open the Lord's Word. Now, let's begin with a moment of prayer, if you would. Father, we are so grateful, grateful for the privilege to come together as the family, to come together into your presence and to offer our praise and our worship to you, to come together to hear from you in your word. So we ask that you would speak to us this morning, and may we listen. We are grateful as well for the opportunity and the privilege of partnering in your work around the world. As we listen this morning to a few words from Tom and Heather, we ask your grace upon them and upon the work of Awana. What a marvelous ministry. We pray that you would raise up the leaders that Tom mentioned they need and, and uh, uh, those who can serve and, and that you'd continue to open doors as many uh, clubs and much of the work has been shut down due to this, this pandemic. Father, we pray that you would bring a swift end to this pandemic, that uh, the, the ministry of the gospel would not be hindered uh, both around the world and here in our own community and in our own church. Father, we also think this morning of our missionaries of the week, Tom and Lisa Phillips and their work in Mongolia. Pray your blessing upon them as they prepare to step into the winter season and the, the many difficulties of the harsh winter there. Pray for warm hearts and much fruit of their la- for their labor there. So again, Father, we commit ourselves, we commit this time to you in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue in this marvelous book. If you have been with us or whether you're uh, here for the first time, and by the way, welcome if you are, we're glad to have you. Just a quick review, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to young pastor Timothy. Timothy has been left in the the city of of Ephesus, sorry, uh, actually a big city, a major city, and he's been left there to deal with some problems in the Ephesian church. Um, And so this letter is written from Paul with some instructions, with some encouragements, uh, for this, for Timothy, as he undertakes this difficult task, in the process, as Paul has been writing about the matters in this church and church matters, we've seen that Paul has taught us that the gospel matters, that grace matters, that prayer matters. He's talked about matters of worship and men's and women's roles in the church. He's talked about matters of leadership about elders and deacons. And in this passage before us this morning, Paul informs us why why all these things that he has written about and all that he has yet to write in this book, why they matter, why they are important. And it's because the church matters, which is the, the title of our whole series here. It's all about church matters, because the church matters. Follow along with me. I hope you have your Bibles open. Uh, I encourage you to do that. It helps you to follow along. Verse 14 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As a kid, uh, like many of you here this morning, I grew up in church. Uh, I think I was just a day or two old the first time that I was in a church. And uh, my family was there every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and many or most Wednesday evenings. But I remember that uh, my parents would do what I see so many of you do, and I love it. When church is over, you don't just rush out the door, you hang around and you gab for ever to a kid, it seems. And I remember what I would do is what most of the kids do here. When parents are visiting, the kids are running around. And, and uh, I remember quite often I'd get in trouble for running too much, being too rambunctious. And I would hear the words, 
That's not how we behave in God's house. And I'm sure that whatever it, reprimands I got, I well deserved them. Um, but I didn't correct them on their theology because I didn't know any better at the time. But that building there in El Paso, Texas, like this building here, this building is not the church. And when Paul here talks about the church, he's not talking about church buildings. He is talking about the people of God, believers in Jesus Christ, who are the church. The church is people. It is the church universal. It is also the church local as believers gather together like here at the chapel. We are the church in our local assembly. And Paul is concerned about how we behave as believers because wherever the church gathers, whether we gather uh, in someone's home, like many of you this morning, you're gathered in your home worshiping with us. We're gathering as the church, even albeit virtually some of us this morning. But whatever we gather here, whether we gather in a grand cathedral, whether we gather in the open air or gather hidden in the Roman catacombs, whether we gather together in a storefront or in a parking lot, wherever God's people gather together, there is something marvelous. And these verses here remind us of some of the wonderful, glorious truths about the church. And as we said last week, by the way, for those of you watching virtually, it's important, it's necessary at times, but together is really what's the best for the church, to be together personally, face to face. But three things are that I want to note here in this text about the church. The first is that God has made us family. You'll notice there in verse 2, he talks about the household of God. Literally, that can be translated the family of God. We have a great identity as the church. God has made us his family. He is our father and Therefore, and we are his children, and therefore we are brothers and sisters of one another. That's often what we call each other, brother, sister, because we are family. That's why, by the way, we should want to be together. We should want to be together. Every Sunday, every gathering should be a family reunion. God has made us family. But secondly, this text reminds us that the living God is with us. It talks about the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Actually, in, it's even more emphatic in the original. It's the living God's church. It was a big deal in the Old Testament. A very big deal that God chose to dwell with His people, to live with His people. You recall when God brought the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness that God was there with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And then God gave instructions to build the tabernacle. And the presence of God inhabited the tabernacle. And then later on, a couple of centuries later, a few centuries later, I should say, in, uh, there was the temple that was built in Jerusalem, and God put His presence there dwelling among His people in the temple. Not that God could be contained in a building or in a tent, but God chose to manifest Himself to demonstrate His love and His favor upon His people by physically manifesting His presence in, in their midst, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Today, in the age of the church, there is a reality even more marvelous because we learn from God's Word that God doesn't now dwell near us in a 
tabernacle or a temple where we go to be near Him, but He dwells in us. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God's Spirit, he says, dwells in us. It's astounding. God's Spirit lives in us individually, but there's even more because He is at work in us corporately as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, In Him, in, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us individually as believers, but God is also in the process of taking us together as believers, and He says, like living stones, He is assembling us together into a living temple in which His Spirit dwells. His Spirit dwells in us individually, but there is something unique and marvelous in the gathered church and in the universal church corporately. Together, we comprise the body of Christ. As Paul says later to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church is special and unique and marvelous because God has made us family with one another and with Him. And God lives in us. And thirdly, because God has given us a great mission. You notice he says here that we, the church, are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now there are those who twist this verse, misuse it, trying to say that the church is the source of truth. That it is the church which speaks with the authority of God. But that's not at all the meaning here of this text. Our authority, our source of truth is God speaking through His Word. That, you will recall, was the great cry of the, of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. The church is our authority. Not, excuse me, the Scripture is our authority. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. The Scripture is our authority, not the church. Not a man. It is the Word of God that is our authority. This text is not saying then that we are the authority being the pillars and foundation, but rather as the pillars and foundation, we support the Word of God, we support the truth of God, and we do that in a couple of ways. We do that through our proclamation, our proclaiming of God's Word, and through our lives, through the living out of God's Word. You see, the world needs to hear the truth of God's Word. And God has intended, God has determined that they hear the Word of God through the church of God, through the people of God. You recall Jesus said, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, through, in Samaria, and, through, and to the ends of the earth. We are bearers of God's truth. We are His witnesses. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 5. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. God intends for the world to hear the truth of His Word. But He has tasked us as the church to be the mouthpiece. And by the church, that doesn't mean the pastor... It means us as the church, you and I, are to be those who carry the truth of God's Word to a lost world. But not only that, the church is not only to hear God's truth through us, but the world is supposed to see the truth of God's Word in us as they see Jesus in us because we are the body of Christ. 
As the body of Christ, we are to live as a visible representation of Jesus Christ. The world should look at us as we live out the truth of God's Word and they should see in us the goodness and the grace and the love of God. As we live out the truth of God's Word, if they don't see that in us, we are spiritually sick, for they ought to see that. That is God's intention. That is God's calling to us as a church. He has given to us a high calling to be the pillar and the buttress, the foundation of the truth as we hold it out to a lost world. Now, if the world is going to know God's truth through us, if they are going to hear it from us and see it in us, what that means is we need to know God's truth. We need to know it well. It's important because truth matters. The church matters because we are the pillar and foundation of truth. Truth matters, especially and of paramount importance is the truth about Jesus Christ. For all the scripture, all the word of God really centers around Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looking forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament looking to the fact that he has come and he came to be our savior and he is coming again as king of kings and lord of lords. And so it makes it, it, Paul can't help himself here. He breaks out into this next little, these next verse to talk about the, the significance and the centrality about the truth of Christ. Look with me at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. He says, we confess. Literally, it translates to, we say together. What he's doing here apparently is, is speaking a creed, a confession of faith that, the, that these early churches would say that they knew well. Probably it was set to music. It was probably a song. May I say that there is great power in songs. Power to help us to, to learn and retain truth. To learn and retain the scriptures. To learn and retain Theology, doctrine, teaching. The ancient church harnessed this very well. And they used music to, they put the scriptures to music. They put good theology to music so that people could learn it. Especially important in days when having print, written copies of the word of God, it was scarce. And, and many folks were illiterate. A great way to learn is through music. I, mean, I say the modern church could stand to do more of that where we take God's Word and put it to heart through music and good theology and put it to heart through music. I appreciate that in recent years, more modern folks have become hymn writers and putting good theology to, to music. I appreciate Brother Rob who takes great care to not just sing a lot of fluff, but to get... Uh, to, to take hymns ancient like a mighty fortress is our God and hymns modern like we sang at the beginning, the name of which I can't remember at the moment, but th great theology in, in those songs. It's good. That was all free. That's what happens when you get a musician preaching. Sorry, I like to talk about the wonder of music. This was likely a song. We don't have the music, but all the indications in this is that it was... It was poetry, at least, and probably a song. And in it, there are six marvelous truths about Jesus encapsulated in a few words so that when folks would take it home, they could remember and go through, what do we know about Jesus? Because at the heart of truth, 
The truth that matters, it's all about Jesus. Great is the mystery of godliness, by the way, it says. A mystery in the New Testament means something that was unknown, but now has been revealed. And the great mystery of godliness, you don't need to go out and buy a book to to learn the mystery of godliness because he lays it out for us right here in six lines. And it's all about not what, it's all about who, it's all about Jesus. Because notice... The mystery, great is the mystery of godliness. And the next word, he. It's talking about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, in the flesh, talking about the incarnation of Jesus. The eternal creator God became one of us. Wow, that's astounding. He moves on, vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus' identity as God and Jesus' Perfection, the perfection of his character, his sinless character, were amply demonstrated through his miracles, demonstrated through his life, demonstrated through his teachings, demonstrated through his character. And yet he was crucified. Crucified as a common criminal. Crucified as a blasphemer. But then came the resurrection. And in the resurrection, through the resurrection, he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. All of his claims were proven true. He is God incarnate, God who became man. He is the sinless one. God has validated he is righteous. He is the one, the sinless one who died in our place as a substitute for our sin, vindicated by the Spirit. He is our substitute. says he was seen by angels, probably referring to the angels who announced his resurrection, maybe referring to other angels perhaps through his life and the angels of heaven celebrating his resurrection. Perhaps it's not talking about Heavenly angels at all. The word angels can be translated simply or is translated simply messenger also. Maybe it's talking about the disciples who witnessed, saw the resurrected Christ and were messengers of His proclaiming His resurrection. The fact is Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and He was seen. He was resurrected and as the verse goes on, He was preached among the nations the once fearful and timid disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ were transformed into bold, fearless men who went around into the face of great danger and and great persecution and proclaimed boldly the resurrected Jesus. All of them except John dying as martyrs because they refused to quit speaking of the resurrected Jesus. Because of their testimony, he was belie- Jesus was believed on in the world. Many came to faith in Christ and were saved. Thousands in the early days of the church, just the first weeks of the church, thousands upon thousands spread from there throughout the then-known world, and then through the centuries down to us, millions of millions of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It says He was taken up into glory. Jesus ascended to heaven with the promise, with the assurance that He will one day return He will return and set up His kingdom, fulfill all the promises of Scripture. There in that hymn, there's incarnation, substitution, resurrection, evangelism, salvation, glorification in just six short lines. The wonderful truth of Jesus Christ, because truth matters. Paul moves on as you go into chapter 4 in the first verse and he 
confronts us with a warning about apostasy. We need to know the Scriptures well. We need to know the truth about Jesus Christ well because there are enemies of the gospel. Those who aim to draw people away from the truth of Christ, away from faith in Christ, and to destroy the church and our mission. Follow along as I read the first couple of verses here of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. First we might notice that he talks about the later times, the later days. And you may wonder, when is that? When is this apostasy going to happen? When are folks going to depart from the faith? The answer to that is simply, well, it's now. The Apostle John writes in his little letter, 1 John 2, he says, Children, it is the last hour. In Bible terminology, the last times, the last days, the last hours, it began with Jesus coming to earth. We see that over in First Peter, Peter's first letter, chapter 1, verse 20. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Hebrews 1 says similarly that, but in these last days, He, that's God, has spoken to us through His Son. When are the last days? They began when Jesus came to earth with His first coming, and it stretches until He comes again. till He comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. These are the last days. So when does this apostasy, this departing from the faith, happen? Well, it happened in the first century here in this church in Ephesus. There were those who departed from the faith, and it's happening today, and it will continue to happen until Jesus returns. This is written here for a few reasons. The first is this. It is written here so that you and I won't be surprised and so that these believers here in Ephesus won't be surprised. Don't be shocked when you hear that someone has walked away from the faith that they have abandoned their belief in Jesus Christ. There have been in the last couple of years several noted, known evangelical pastors and leaders who stepped forward and just announced one day, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm no longer a believer in Jesus Christ. That ought to dismay us. It ought to concern us. It ought to sadden us. But it should not destroy us. And it should not shock us. For God has said, the Spirit has said, explicitly it will happen. We can read from the words of Jesus through the words of the apostles that it's going to happen. Don't be surprised. Verse 2 says that when... Many, when folks depart from the faith, the, the vehicle of that will be deceivers. Men who are clever liars, he says. Men whose consciences have been seared. Literally, the word there is cauterized. <laughs> Con men who deliberately steer people away from the truth and yet... The verse also tells us that there's something larger, even more evil behind them. Their lies, their false deep teachings, it says, come from evil spirits, from demons. In light of that, brothers and sisters, as I said, there is a warning here for us. We must never, ever ever forget 
what the Scripture teaches to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a citizen here of this world, you are a citizen of heaven. Our home is not here. As the old, 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 old chorus used to say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. See, our citizenship is in heaven. Our Savior, our King, is in heaven. One day He's going to return to earth to establish His kingdom. But in the meantime, what the Scripture tells us is that we are in enemy territory. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle. That we, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, not of this physical world, but of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are in a spiritual battle, but it's not against people. We have an enemy that is supernatural. Satan and his demonic forces are against us. And the word of the Scripture says that our prime purpose in this life it is not to dig deep roots into this world and get comfy because it's not our home. Our prime mission here, as we saw back in the last verses of chapter 3, is the church is to be a pillar and a buttress, a foundation of the truth. Those who proclaim and live the truth of God before a lost world. That is our mission. And when we do that, we're going to get attention from the enemy. But when we forget our purpose, and let's face it, we so easily do, don't we? We forget our purpose and we start to grow deep roots and we start to make our home here. I struggle with it all the time. Do you? But when we forget our purpose, we are sitting ducks to be picked off by the enemy. Just like as we were reading earlier in our scripture reading from uh, 2 Timothy where it said, if you recall, no soldier gets entangled with the affairs of civilian life. It would be foolish for a soldier out in the midst of the battlefield to just take a step away from the battle and walk over and uh, try to find somebody who will sell him a deed to some property over here so he can just build a little house over here in the middle of the battle. Who does that? And yet that's the warning here. Let's not get sidetracked. Be alert. Be alert. In the past couple of weeks, I've received phone calls from the IRS. I received a phone call from Social Security. I received text messages from Google and Spectrum. I've received emails from others that I can't think of at the moment. I also received an email from a law firm in Canada and an email from a dear old widow in England. The law firm in Canada and the dear widow in England both wanted to share with me millions of dollars. Can you believe my good fortune? Now, my bad fortune was the IRS and Social Security and Google and Spectrum all told me my accounts had been hacked. There was suspicious activity. And it was one of the credit card companies, too, called. 
And they were, oh no, it was, it was just uh, card services, yes, yeah, called. But all of them saying there's suspicious activity, and you know, they're all frauds. They are all looking to get information or money from me, or the information to get money from me. Their purpose is the exact same as the person who accosts you on the street of St. Louis, sticks a gun in your face, and says, give me your money. Their purpose is the same it's just their methodology is more subtle. And by the way, if they're successful, it's much more damaging in terms of what they get because I don't carry much cash with me. See, the warning of this apostasy here is to make us alert because we tend to think that doctrines of demons... And of evil spirits, well, you know, that's going to be just really obvious, blatant, satanic stuff, you know. It's going to be like, uh, you know, just absolute hatred and vitriol, and it's going to be uh, just evil living, and it's going to be all this kind of stuff that we just go, whoa, that's like satanic. Stay away from that. But if we notice... When he says that some have departed the faith because they have gone after this false teaching, notice what has drawn them away by these false teachers. Look at verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. The false teaching is packaged in super devout religion. Really so sincere and so spiritual. You see, Satan sometimes comes like the crook with the gun in blatant stuff, and some people are attracted to that. But most often, he comes as the con man. Disguised, as Scripture says, his servants as angels of light. And here it's coming, pretending to be so super spiritual. And we read this and we think, what's the big deal? This is all the stir. All this stir right here is about this. People who are, are forbidding marriage and, and requiring abstaining from some food. That's all this? I mean, doesn't Paul himself, over in 1 Corinthians 7, doesn't Paul himself talk about some of the value of living single? And espouse singleness. And I recall that the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 14, he and Barnabas prayed and fasted. They abstained from food. So what's the big deal here? <laughs> the problem here is not you choosing singleness so that you can have more time to serve God or you choosing to skip some meals so that you can focus more time and energy and thought into prayer. The problem here is legalism. This passage gives us three reasons why it is such a big deal, why it is so wrong. Let's just read these verses again. Verse 3. Actually, I haven't read most of it. I just started verse 3 a moment ago. Who, these false teachers, these doctrines of demons, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Three reasons why these teachings are demonic and dangerous and so wrong. The first is that simply they are contrary to God's Word. You can see it right here in the text. Notice he says these deceivers are setting requirements. They are speaking where God has not spoken and or they are contradicting what, what God, by, or they are contradicting God by forbidding what God 
has created as good. Interesting. And you will often see this with with false teachers. They have a higher standard than God does. (laughs) Not really, but sometimes it looks that way. Because they come off so spiritual and they go beyond what God requires. They start speaking for God. Yeah, God has said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I say, don't do this, 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 this. Yes, God says, do this, but you must also do this and this and this. Dangerous. They start speaking in God's place. The first clue that these are false teachers is that they don't line up with God's word. They speak where God has not spoken or they contradict what God has said. Note in verse 3, it says that those who know and believe the truth, it is those folks who are able to receive marriage and receive foods as blessings from God's hands. It says that they are that God created these to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, similarly down in verse 4, it says that the Word of God makes these gifts of marriage and foods, makes them holy. For it, these gifts, are made holy by the Word of God. You see, it is God's Word that informs us of what is good and what is wrong. It's God's words that informs us that, not, not the church, not a leader, not a man. It is God's word. False teachers speak where God has not spoken and require things that God has not required And they contradict what God has said. God, this text tells us, created both food and marriage. It takes us right back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. You call what God said at the end of of day 6 of creation, after He had finished creating man and woman, He had finished marriage and food, and He says, it is very good. That's Paul's first point here. His second point about these false teachers and why this is, these teaching is so bad is that it's contrary to God's purpose. I note in both verse 3 and verse 4 that God created these good gifts for you and me as believers to receive with thanksgiving. Did you notice that verse? It comes, that word, it comes up twice, with thanksgiving. Verse 5 also says that these gifts are made holy by the Word of God, and it uses that word prayer. And the prayer, I think, is as you receive these gifts, as you enjoy these gifts, you respond with prayer. And prayer of what? Prayer of, as we've already said twice, thanksgiving. God's intention for these gifts, for these good gifts that He gave, are that they are given for our benefit, for our enjoyment. And that you and I, when we receive these as believers in Jesus Christ, our the natural response is to turn them back to God and say, thank you. As you enjoy your husband, as you enjoy your wife, as you enjoy a good meal, that you go, thank you, God. When these false teachers prohibit what God has given as good, it robs not only us of enjoyment, it robs God of glory. This is evil, is his point. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, this false teaching of legalism is dangerous and deadly Because it is contrary to the gospel. For this I actually have to go back to the first verse. Where he says that it is because of this false teaching of these false teachings of doctrines of demons and of evil spirits. These false teachers that folks have left. They have departed 
from the faith. They have walked away from faith in Jesus, and they have turned instead, as legalism does, it turns us from faith in Christ to faith in ourselves. Because what it says is, I believe that I can be good enough, I can do good enough, I can do something that will earn merit, that will earn standing, that will earn favor and salvation with God. That is one of the oldest lies of Satan. It is, that the, lie, it is the lie at the heart of every religion of man. It is a deadly lie, and that's why Satan loves it. Satan loves it when he can get people doing spiritual stuff, thinking that somehow they are earning God's favor, when he can get them trying being religious. Because no one can earn salvation. Satan's great goal, his great aim is to keep people from being saved. And one of his most effective tools in keeping people from being saved is getting them stuck in a religion of works. Thinking they can somehow earn it. It's deadly. Scripture says, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, in God's sight. There's nothing we can do, not enough works, not any work, no amount of works that we can do that will earn favor, that will earn right standing with God. But thankfully, the passage doesn't stop there. The next verse but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, it says, the way of salvation, a right standing with God, righteousness, is now been made, the way to that has now been made clear. And it's not by works. It is by faith in Jesus, for all who believe in Him. Jesus Christ, as that hymn at the end of chapter 3 said, Jesus Christ is God Himself who was incarnated. He became one of us for the purpose of dying on the cross to pay the penalty we could not pay, to pay the debt of sin that we could not pay. He was validated by his resurrection. Proof of that was the resurrection. And Jesus ascended to heaven and he's going to return one day. Millions of people since have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and found exactly what God says he gives. He gives forgiveness. He gives grace. He gives a new transformed life. And eternal life forevermore. Millions have believed in Jesus since then. The question is, have you? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have not, that is his invitation, his plea with you this morning. Trust Jesus as your Savior. For the rest of us here this morning who are believers in Jesus Christ, really just two big takeaways from this passage. The first is this. We need to study and know God's Word because Satan is active out there. We need to know God's Word so that we will not be easy prey for His con men who have stuff that sounds spiritual, but it is lies from the pit of hell. 
The second big takeaway for us this is this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. It is so easy for you, I'm sure, like it is me, to get sidetracked on making this world my home and just getting comfortable here and forgetting the mission. We are here as the church of Jesus Christ, those bought by His blood, indwelled by the Spirit of God, to be the pillar and the buttress of truth, those who hold out the truth of the good news of Jesus through our lips and through our lives. Father, we needed to hear this passage this morning. Some perhaps because they have never understood the gospel before and they needed to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Most of us, because we so easily fall prey to getting sidetracked on the wrong stuff. May this morning, may we be renewed in our commitment to learn your word. To be then ready to stand when we encounter counterfeits. To be ready when we talk to our neighbors, our family member, our friends who don't know Jesus. Who are ready to share the good news of Christ. That we are willing to share the good news of Christ. And that we'll be faithful to do it. Help us to never lose sight of our prime mission. We ask these things for your glory. Lord, make them reality in us. In Jesus' name.